Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Bernadette Lear, author of Made Free and Thrown Open to the Public. Bernadette Lear is the author of Made Free and Thrown Open to the Public, Community Libraries in Pennsylvania from the Colonial Era through World War II. Now, you call Pennsylvania's library network an unsystem in the book. What do you mean by that? An unsystem. Well, for lack of a better word, and I didn't mean any disrespect or anything, um, but compared to other states that I've lived and worked in, I'm a, I'm a practitioner. I'm a librarian um, and also an active library user. And um, I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, worked in libraries in Massachusetts, in New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and then Pennsylvania. Um, and compared to Maryland, for example, which is organized on the county level, I came here to Pennsylvania and I noticed that, okay, we have the Dauphin County Library System, but Middletown isn't part of that system, nor is Hershey. So I thought that was, that was a little strange. And then when I looked further um, among other counties, some counties didn't have county library systems at all. And I thought, okay. And then when I started looking at comparing different county systems, I noticed some where you had a strong municipal library, like a, a, a urban library that was kind of the headquarters of the system. Um, and then other counties that had a federation of equals <laughs> um, and, that, and that sort of thing. And it, and it struck me as strange that there wasn't one way to do it in every county. So for lack of a better word, I, I call it an unsystem um, because it, it's hard to identify a common pattern amongst all the libraries. Yeah. Now we think of libraries as a place where there are a lot of books and, uh, and archival materials. Yeah. How, how good are libraries at preserving archival materials about themselves? Oh my gosh, um, I, I could get on a, a stump about that one. Um, I wish it was better, I'll be honest with you. Um, in preparing to do my research back in 2012, I did a survey where I identified all the Pennsylvania public libraries that were founded in 1945 or earlier, and I sent them all a survey asking them what kind of records they had. Um, so the number of libraries I surveyed was five to six hundred, um, and only about 150 replied to me. And then when I was looking at the survey results, because I asked them, do you have annual reports? Do you have scrapbooks? Do you have um, minute books from your board of trustees and, and things like that? Um, and I can't tell you the number of times that um, there were replies like, well, we had a flood and it was all lost, or well, we got rid of that stuff, that, that sort of thing. Um, so the libraries that I included in my study were the best case scenario in terms of records. And even there, um, it was interesting. I spent a lot of time in mucking around clothes, you know, dirty jeans, in basements, in attics. Um, 
at one in one point when I was on sabbatical, I felt compelled to get a tetanus shot. <laughs> so yeah, um, libraries are great at preserving the history of their communities, but oddly, not always good about preserving their own history. They're like, oh, that's just our administrative records, who cares? And it's like, no, this is really important towards understanding um, reading in a community and community activism. And, and that sort of thing. Um, so it, very commonly, um, I would, the, a, a library director would say, well, gee, we don't know what we have. Here's the keys to the attic. Use whatever you can find. That happened on more than one occasion. Um, and in other, in other occasions, the records weren't preserved in any kind of archival boxes or anything. They might be in a really old file cabinet um, and falling apart. And, so one thing I did try to do, since I do have some of that knowledge of archival preservation, I would advise the library directors, well, you know, you might want to consider some acid-free boxes. Um, you might want to consider not putting this in the basement since you're on a floodplain, things like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wish I could say that the preservation was better. but. Um, I'm very grateful for the libraries that did partner with me. Um, one of my favorite libraries to talk about is Erie Public Library. Well, now it's called Erie County um, Library um, because they actually did keep all the correspondence of their first few librarians. So they had a complete record of everything that crossed the librarians' desks from the 1890s when the library was first organizing until 1927 when Jean Hard, the head librarian, passed away. And so for 30 years there was everything. And it was like a treasure trove, you know. So, so you know, I could focus on the negative aspects, but I'm just grateful for every public library that did partner with me and did keep their records, and I hope that um, knowing that researchers like me are interested will prompt other public libraries to, to preserve what they do. And one of the things in reading the book was that you realized that libraries don't exist as a, an isolated institution, but that no. they connect to everything else going on in their society, from Absolutely. transportation networks to social and political issues. Uh, was there anything that stood out for you, like that you came across in there, and you're like, wow, I had no idea the library is connected to this thing? Oh, boy. Well, it didn't surprise me, because remember, I'm a librarian. Um, and so those community partnerships, um, I've, in my own career, I've seen those arise in different ways. I've worked with businesses, I've worked with nurses, I've worked with all different types of people in the community. So when I turned to Pennsylvania's library history, it didn't surprise me at all. It was just that some stories were, were cooler than others. Um, for example, um, the Free Library of Philadelphia, um, their music collection, they, they, they're renowned, they were renowned at least for having a great music collection. And you know, part of it started through a local donor, but then they had this partnership with RCA, you know, big recording company. It's like, wow, they actually partnered with that company to do something like that. Um, so the community partnerships and the different flavors of those are funny. Um, another one that, that I, I like to talk about sometimes um, is, was in Johnstown, okay, Cambria County. Um, they had a partnership with the local gun club. 
Um, and they allowed the gun club to have a shooting range in the basement of the library. And the only thing they asked, they said, look, okay, use a, a gunpowder that is, you know, doesn't produce too much smoke. Um, and don't use ammunition that's too big as long as, as, and be consistent with good marksmanship. And I'm like, wow, a gun, a shooting range in a basement of a library, that takes the cake. Um, another one that I've, I, I find interesting um, in Lock Haven, right? The Annie Hallenbake Ross Library uh, in, in, in Clinton County. Yeah, Clinton County. Um, the, the librarian there was very interested in gardening and had a long running collaboration with the gardening club. Well, at the turn of the century, dynamite was a new technology and was being used to clear problematic trees and landscaping features, you know, rocks. If you had rocks you need to clear, you stick a stick a dynamite in there. Well, she allowed the gardening club to use dynamite to blow up one of the trees on the library property. <laughs> you know, and I and I think now of 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 what I would do and not do in terms of my community partnerships and I think I'd probably draw the line at blowing something up. Um, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but uh, those are the ones that stick in my mind are some of those unusual things that I'm not sure I would try today. <laughs> now, Pennsylvania has a long history of libraries. Usually mm -hmm. people associate people like Benjamin Franklin yep. uh, with that. What was his role? Um, well, what I would say is Benjamin Franklin was important for organizing people around books specifically, okay? So before Benjamin Franklin, People have had a long history of sharing reading materials among family members and friends informally or through their church, that sort of thing. But that community of people was bound together by something else. They weren't bound together by the books. They were bound together by family ties or by friendship ties or religious ties. What Franklin contributed was binding people together, bringing people together around books and around shared reading materials, which was something new. And he created an organizational structure to sustain that relationship. Um, so in my book, I talk about the Library Company of Philadelphia, which still exists, although it's very different now than what it was back then. Um, and what Franklin did was, um, well, kind of precedes it. He uh, formed a social group called the Junto, um, where men, tradesmen of a similar class to him, got together to talk about ideas, talk about books, you know, the discussion group sort of thing. And then the, their use of books and reading materials prompted Franklin to establish a library specifically so people could share reading materials because books were so expensive. Um, so that, so pooling their resources. And the organizational structure that he devised is something that what scholars call today a proprietary library. Proprietary meaning that um, the people involved in the library would buy shares of stock. You actually owned stock, you owned a piece of the library. So you would pay, I don't know, I'm not using the right monetary figures here, but $5 or $10 a year, or whatever it was, um, to own stock in the library. And you might have to pay an annual fee to be an active member and vote in the organization and things like that. Um, and so that money was used sometimes to rent rooms, to buy books, to maybe give a small stipend to a librarian, although they usually used volunteer labor for library work. 
Um, and so that was his big contribution was, I think, organizing people around books specifically. Um, and, and that model of his, that stockholding proprietary sort of model, um, spread as Pennsylvanians migrated away from Philadelphia and more into the north and west, into the interior of the state. Um, you find library companies popping up with people migrating um, west. So, so for example, Reading had a library company in the 1760s. Um, Erie had one in the early 1800s and, and so on. So that model, uh, um, that pay-as-you-go sort of model, was enforced for a very long time. Was that model sustainable for some of these communities? I would say no. I. Um, Philadelphia is kind of its own case because, you know, Philadelphia is it, within a small geographic area, you have a lot of wealthy people. So Philadelphia was unique in the in the number and variety of libraries that it was able to sustain. But when you leave Philadelphia and you go even to cities that we would consider pretty large today, like Erie or like Reading, okay? Um, Reading is a great example. Um, there, there, another historian wrote a book about the history of libraries in Reading and entitled it The Library That Would Not Die, <laughs> which I think is funny, but it captures an important truth that, you know, a lot of times these libraries did die very quickly, um, especially after the initial organizers kind of lost interest or they moved on to other things. Um, so library history in Pennsylvania is full of a lot of institutions that started with great ideals and a lot of passion and even maybe some money, um, but then kind of died on the vine. Um, and, and so, for example, in Reading, um, that, that library died, I don't know, seven or eight times um, until the 1890s when it got taken over by the city of Reading. So, um, so sustainable, no. And some of the reasons for that, um, when you rely exclusively on volunteers, I mean, think of all the things that can happen to a volunteer, you know, deaths in the family, um, new work, moving away, all those different things that can happen in an individual's life. And if that one person is the center of that library and the real impetus behind it, then things can fall away really quickly. Um, so, so unsustainable uh, from that perspective of relying on small numbers of people. Also unsustainable in, if you look at the service side of it and, and what users would experience. Because a lot of colonial libraries were so thinly staffed just by volunteers, they were only open a couple of days a week couple of hours each of those days and so they couldn't serve all the different people in the community um, especially working people who would be at work all day and couldn't come to the library between three and six in the afternoon you know um, so unsustainable in terms of being able to grow to reach a wide number of people so what types of books would have been found in some of these libraries you mentioned that Ben Franklin had a role in, in focusing on useful knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting because you, you can still find printed catalogs of some of these early libraries, colonial and early national libraries. And it's always, it's always interesting to me to see what they had. Um, because even in some small communities, you would have 
what I would consider pretty scholarly stuff. Legal treatises, you'd have Lavoisier talking about chemistry, uh, Francis Bacon and science, and you're like, what are farmers gonna do with this stuff? You know, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. And, and you know, I came away with that saying, you know, um, today sometimes we think certain classes of people might be more or less interested in certain classes of things, but you really can't, um, peg people that way. Um, you'd be surprised at what people are interested in reading in their spare time. So you find a mix. You find fiction, you find novels, you know. Um, you find history, um, science, travel. Travel was a very popular uh, genre back then. Travelogues, you know. Um, so, so you find that. You s sometimes find magazine, newspaper subscriptions. Um, even legal materials sometimes, especially if the founders of the library or a big constituent of the users were um, in the legal profession. Uh, so you find that. You find some religious stuff, but not as much as you'd think. You know, sometimes we have stereotypical ideas of, oh, people were very religious back then. I bet they had a lot of religious stuff. Not always, you know. So uh, you do find quite a variety. Were there conflicts within communities about how much, say, how much fiction should be included versus how much other subjects, or do librarians pretty much have the freedom to pick whatever they thought was interesting? Well, importantly, okay, so through the colonial era and throughout most of the 19th century, uh, book buying was not done exclusively by the librarian. Um, in fact, most of your libraries had a committee, a subcommittee within the library's board or, or some sort of group um, that would actually do book selection, um, especially for opening day collections. Uh, so, so the board of trustees would weigh in on that kind of thing. In fact, uh, for example, um, in Wilkes-Barre in the 1890s, um, Hannah Packard James, who we might talk about later, um, Hannah Packard James was arguably the first professional public librarian here in Pennsylvania. She came from Massachusetts. And she, very professional, um, well-trained, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, she knew how to choose books. And yet, when she was choosing books for Wilkes-Barre, you know, she would read reviews and she would develop a list of books that she thought would be good. And then that list would get run by the board of trustees. And if they objected to any of them, that was it, you know. Um, so, so the board of trustees of, of libraries back then had a lot more say in day-to-day -day book selection than what they do now. Um, and, and you know, I wonder, as, as a practicing librarian, if that's a situation I would have liked to have worked under, you know, um, you know, to have somebody over your shoulder saying, no, you can't buy that. Now, at the community level, um, there are instances of uh, uh, members of the public uh, protesting uh, or, or raising concerns about certain materials. Um, so, for example, in Scranton, for example, um, the Scranton Library in the 1890s was headed by Henry Carr, another very authoritative librarian. He was president of the American Library Association at one point, president of the Pennsylvania Library Association at one point. Um, and he did tend to have, men usually had more authority to buy books than, the, than female librarians did. 
um, especially. So he was given more free reign than a lot of librarians at the time did. Um, but there was a big controversy in the 1890s because on the library shelves there were books that um, were viewed as being anti-Catholic. Um, and members of the Catholic community raised concern about certain titles, and that really upset one of the city council members who threatened to withdraw funding from the library. And so there was a big hue and cry with battling going back and forth in the in the newspapers and all that. Um, Carr eventually was able to resolve this problem by interestingly kind of comparing himself to a shopkeeper and saying you know when you run a business sometimes you buy products and they're shoddy products and you send them back to the to the place that you bought them and this is a case just like that you know and he, he that's how he kind of looked at it he explained how he used different review sources and he thought the books were good but you know when you're buying hundreds of books a year sometimes you get some duds and <laughs> That's, that's how he wiggled out of that situation. And so Scranton got its funding back and, you know, things died down. Um, to, to give an example from a rural community, um, I found this wonderful account from Bedford Library, so Bedford County. Um, that library, the board was mostly women because a women's club had started the library. Um, and the women, um, so this is in the 1920s, the women were reviewing books, deciding which books were okay to put on the library shelves. And, you know, because of Freud, there was more sexual openness in books by the 1920s. And so they had some internal conflicts over how much what they called raw sex stuff should be in books that are in the community library. Um, and so the system that they came up with was, okay, it, three, at least three people are gonna read every book that we get, and if two say no, then out it goes. And th that was their solution. Um, another uh, flashpoint um, here in Pennsylvania has been books about social socialism and communism. Um, Pennsylvania has had, over time, you know, a strong socialist community, you know, during the industrial era and then again in the 1930s, you know, during the Great Depression. Um, and so, you know, different socialist clubs wanting to put socialist literature, socialist magazines in the library, um, and the libraries trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, and sometimes there being counter protests among more conservative members in the community. Oh, you can't have socialism on the shelves and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so yeah, there have, been, there have been quite a few conflicts over the years. How did uh, industrialization in the latter half of the 19th century uh, affect libraries? Did, did it cause an increase in libraries? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, industrialization, well, it, it actually started earlier than the late 19th century um, because Pennsylvania industrialized pretty early in some parts, right? And so that caused um, displacement of a lot of workers which, believe it or not, is something that some libraries were founded to address. So you had a whole type of library called mechanics libraries. Mechanics libraries um, started in the 1820s, 1830s, that early, um, to provide reading material and educational events to help working class men prepare for whatever was beyond 
farming and home production and things like that. So to help people adjust to this new industrial era that was happening. Um, but to answer your question about the late 19th century, the big thing that industrialization does is it creates massive amounts of wealth among business owner, business founders, owners, and then also substantial wealth among the professions that relate to those industries. So lawyers, engineers, um, and then people who invest in those burgeoning businesses. So you have, in many communities, you have these millionaires rows, you know, what, neighborhoods of very wealthy people. Um, and the, especially among the ones that don't have any children, don't have any heirs, they have money to bequeath. Uh, and where are they going to give it? Um, so a lot of the public libraries here in Pennsylvania, you know, have individual people's names attached to them, like the James V. Brown Library in Williamsport, right? Um, or the Annie Hallenbeck Ross Library in Lock Haven. Um, Andrew Carnegie, another great example, <laughs> massive amounts of wealth, and they fund library buildings. And so a lot of the growth in public libraries, um, especially the building frenzy that happened um, in the 1880s through the 1920s, that was a direct result of industrialization and the, the wealth that was generated through that. Now, this was also the, this period in late 19th century into the early 20th century was a period of professionalization. How did that affect the career of librarians? Oh, that's a great question. That was a great question. Okay, so in the colonial era, a lot of library work was done by volunteers. So there, there wasn't really professionalization the way we know it. Um, in, in the early years, basically, as long as you were a responsible person, you had literacy and numeracy skills, bookkeeping skills, that kind of thing, um, you could be appointed as a librarian. I, you know, it was, the bar was pretty low. Um, but as libraries get bigger and as they're open more hours, okay, as their collections get more complicated, okay, then you start to see a need for additional skills. Um, you have the need for librarians who can administer, manage budgets, um, can allocate budgets and in, in you know a professional way, um, people who have knowledge of the publishing community and knowledge of of books and you know what sort of subjects are out there and what sort of books meet the needs of different types of people, um, managerial skills because as libraries get bigger you have staff that kind of thing, um, so in terms of professionalization. Um, it's interesting because in the in the library profession today, today, the masters in library science is kind of it's kind of like the dividing line, right? Um, for many professional level jobs in libraries, it'll say right in the job requirement that an MLS is required. Um, back in the 19th century, though, that the educational qualification was not. Um, as important at all. Um, so you don't really see uh, library science 
library education programs until the 1880s. Columbia in New York was the first one, founded by Melville Dewey. That was the first one. Um, Pennsylvania's first was Drexel in 1892. Um, but alongside those university-based programs, you had um, apprenticeship and other sort of training programs. So for example, the, Carne the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, they had a training school for children's librarians that eventually over many years morphed into the University of Pittsburgh's program. Um, and so those training schools would focus more on day-to-day -day library practice rather than graduate level academic content like we have today. So yeah, so it, in terms of how that professionalization affected libraries, I think one of the most important things is that someone who is trained in the work and has made it their life's career, um, who's paid to do it, works full-time hours to do it, that lends some continuity so that when certain volunteers or donors fall away, fall away as naturally happens, there's somebody to, to keep holding the torch um, and, and planning and helping make priorities um, and, and definitely more efficiency in library work, training volunteers how to do the work. So one argument I make in my book, is, and I believe that it's true today as well, is that libraries are strongest when um, professional librarians and active volunteers, activists in the community when they work together. Um, you, so you, you have, from the professional side, you have um, a sense of direction, you have institutional memory, um, you have efficient practices, and then from the community side, you have resources, you have connections, you have political support, and, and so on. How did uh, libraries serve as, as a pathway for careers for women? Oh boy. Um, There, there would be a lot of different opinions on that in the scholarly community, right? Um, so I've, I've read scholarship um, that sees it as uh, very beneficial, it being a librarianship being a pathway to community power. Um, so women becoming library directors, and so there's status there, there's a better salary there, and then them being included in certain social circles. So, so some scholars have interpreted it as a pathway to power. Um, other scholars look more at the lower level staff librarians and how poorly they were paid. Um, no benefits, uh, long hours, more of a labor history point of view, and, and see it as exploitation. And so when I was researching this book, I found examples of both. Um, so, so in the 1930s and 40s, for example, um, you, you have uh, Virginia Coons Valenchik, who was Allentown's um, librarian, head librarian, and very strong, powerful woman, um, and very self-confident woman too. Um, so when it came, uh, when when uh, different library legislation was being discussed in Harrisburg, she had no problem getting in a car, coming to Harrisburg, meeting with different senators and representatives. And, and she would joke, she, you know, she always wore very fancy 
clothes because that she said that the men wouldn't remember her face, but they would remember her hat. And so she would wear these hats and, and, and things like that. Um, and so she was a very powerful woman. May Virginia Kunz Valensic was her name. Very powerful woman. Um, and she ended up uh, improving working conditions for library staff in Allentown. Okay, so you have her on one hand, and then you have librarians on the other hand. So, um, for example, um, a, a, a great example, uh, I can't remember her, her first name, but the librarian who worked at Center County's library in Belfont. Her and her husband lived in an apartment above the library, because the, the library was in a historic home, and they had a bedroom apartment, and he drove the library mobile, the bookmobile. And they got paid very poorly, you know, and, and so you have those stories, too, of people who are providing really vital service to their communities and, you know, living poverty wages. Um, another example I could give um, comes from Pottsville. So the librarian in Pottsville was there, working there, uh, for about 30 years, and I ended up uncovering her will. And her will is just so heartbreaking because, you know, after so many years of being a librarian and she's 90 years old when she dies and all of her stuff, total, everything she owns is worth about $4,000 in today's money. And when you look at the estate inventory, you know, it lists chairs and pieces of pottery, broken, broken, worn, blah, 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 blah. And of all the things that she owned, the only thing that the Pottsville Library, because she left her whole estate to the Pottsville Library, the only thing that the Pottsville Library wanted was her refrigerator, which they put in the staff room. Uh, but she didn't have anything else of value. So you have a lot of stories of librarians who have served their communities for a long time but because of low wages they they live in almost poverty conditions so so that's hard for me to answer both as a practitioner as a female and as a scholar you know to know that my forebears um <laughs> very typically worked 60 70 hours a week you know for 40 or 50 dollars a week in in money from those times you know um, I did the calculations and a lot of those head librarians you know in the 19th and early 20th century were earning less than half of what a library assistant so somebody who's non-managerial would earn today you know if you compare dollars so so it's hard for me to say whether it was a real opportunity for women or not um, I think it gave them a different are a, a, a different chance to be involved in their community. It got them out of the house, um, maybe gave them an opportunity to earn some money. Uh, but, you know, I would say that in the 19th and early 20th century, um, these women were not getting rich. They weren't part of the elite social circles in the community. They were part of professional circles of teachers and and you know clergy and things like that, but they they weren't elites. Um, now, in your book, you also talk about the the series of laws that were passed over time to oh boy, yeah. make it easier to found libraries. Why was it so difficult to get the legislation right for that? Oh boy, um, we only have an hour, right? Uh, <laughs> well, here in Pennsylvania, okay. Um, if I were to try to summarize the situation about library laws in the 19th, early 20th century. 
It's the difference between compulsory legislation where, you know, okay, this is a law that you have to abide by versus um, optional. It's like, so, so empowering legislation. So, so a lot of the legislation pertaining to libraries would say things like, you can do this. It was enabling you to do this, that, the other, but it didn't require you to do it. So at the local level, people did all kinds of things. All right. Um, another another thing that made made things a little more complicated. Okay, so in the state of Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Constitution that was in force from the 1870s through 1968 or so um, said that the state government couldn't give money to charities to entities that weren't under the control of the state. So that forced library funding and a lot of library decision making down to the county and local level. Okay. So 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 that's part of the challenge. And then another part of the challenge is that here in Pennsylvania, I'm sure you're aware, we have different municipal classes. So we have first class city, Philadelphia, we have second class cities, third class, and so on and so forth. Well, in the 19th century, those classes meant a lot because certain municipal powers were granted to certain cities of certain classes. So what developed, the legislation that developed would often pertain to a certain municipality of a certain class. So one of my favorite examples is boroughs, okay? Pennsylvania boroughs, so smaller municipalities. In the 1880s, boroughs could not establish a library. They couldn't found a library. They couldn't build a library. But they were allowed to use money generated through dog licenses to fund libraries. So there was a dog tax, and if your, your municipality if you had a dog license, the tax, you could use that money to pay for libraries. Now, isn't that funny? Um, so, so, you know, when people complain, oh, the libraries went to the dogs, well, actually, <laughs> the dogs funded the libraries. Um, I mean, that's a more extreme example. Um, but, but in the 19th century, you had a flurry of different bills allowing different classes of municipalities to do different things. And it was a big morass, especially if you think about how um, industrializing areas were really growing and adding population and different things. It confused the heck out of library founders. Um, so, so looking in records of a lot of different libraries, the Board of Trustees, you'll see them going back and forth about whether the law actually allows them to do certain things. Um, and, and in some municipalities, like Allegheny, which is now a part of Pittsburgh, but used to be an independent municipality. In fact, it was one of the largest in Pennsylvania. You had Allegheny say, well, this is how we're going to interpret the law, and this is what we're going to do, and we think it's legal. And so, yes, we are going to accept this offer from Andrew Carnegie, and we're going to have one of the first Carnegie libraries. You know, So they kind of stuck themselves out there and said, well, we're going to do it this way because we think this is the right way to do it. And they had a lot more courage than a lot of other communities did. A lot of other communities would look at the law and say, mm, it doesn't seem like we can do it. Um, so yeah, in terms of why the law, why it was so hard to get the law right, um, part of it was there was no state level library law, not until 1917, that applied to everybody. 
there were all these different bills, different pieces of legislation that applied to different types of cities. Now you mentioned An Andrew Carnegie. Uh, given his Pennsylvania connection, was he a, a major player in development of libraries in the state? Boy, that's something that you and I could talk over for a while. Um, what I'm going to say is kind of heterodoxical, right? So within within the library history scholarly community, Andrew Carnegie, oh, you know, he founded 1,600 libraries across the United States, public libraries, never mind the college libraries and other types of libraries he founded here, never mind ones that he built overseas, okay? Um, but, and, and, and if you look at the dollar figures, Pennsylvania received more dollars than just about any place else. However, his giving was concent very concentrated. He gave a large number of library branches to Philadelphia, so that was a big chunk of the money he gave. Um, and then, of course, the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh and its branches. So he gave a lot of money, but a lot of it went to Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Um, if you look at the number of municipalities, the number of communities that actually got Carnegie grants, there were only 26. Now, you know, like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, compare it to some states in the Midwest where he gave money to more than 100 communities. He gave a lot to the Midwest, hundreds, uh, hundreds of libraries, 100 per state, you know. So, so the number of communities that benefited from Carnegie's generosity was very low, especially when you compare it relative to the number of municipalities in Pennsylvania, 26 out of how many hundreds, thousands of municipalities? It's not that many. Um, I like, in the book, I, I say this, it's a little controversial, but I like to see Carnegie as part of a constellation of people like him, industrialists, wealthy people who were giving libraries at that time. He wasn't the first to give libraries. He happened to be the most wealthy, and because of that wealth, he could found libraries in a lot of places. Um, but, you know, his name, his very name could turn off some communities from uh, establishing Carnegie libraries. For example, Newcastle, way over on the western side of the state, is a great example of that. Um, the town leaders contacted Carnegie, and Carnegie agreed to give a grant to the city. Um, but the local labor community, you know, the labor community, you know, working people working in factories, they're thinking of the homestead strike. They're thinking of labor violence and, you know, Carnegie paying workers very poorly and things like that. They're like, we don't want his library. How about he raise wages if he wants to help people? And so the labor community was adamantly opposed. They even circulated petitions thousands of signatures saying, no, we don't want a Carnegie Library. And so the, the city council kind of took a step back and said, well, let's, let's put it on the ballot. Let's see what the voters want. And the library question lost by a factor of, I think, three to one. I mean, it only carried two wards in the city. Most people didn't want it. Um, so, so his very name and the connection that he had to um, 
labor practices, you know, abusive labor practices would actually discourage some communities from, from partnering with him. And then there was also a kind of a local pride sort of feeling. It was like, you know, why should we take money from Carnegie? There are rich people locally. Let a local person do it. There was that community pride. So in Scranton, for instance, you have the Albright family who steps forward. Um, so, so the library in Scranton originally was an, is, uh, an initiative of the Board of Trade. The Board of Trade started to do fundraising and advocacy for a library and said, hey, why doesn't a local family step forward? And the Albrights did. Um, and so in many Pennsylvania communities, you have local families uh, stepping forward. So here we're in Cumberland County, right? Cumberland County, you have the Bosler family in Carlisle. They stepped forward and found that library. Um, you, you, you also have in Mount Holly, the, the library in Mount Holly, which is really cool. If you ever get a chance to visit it, visit it. Um, an 1890s building that's pretty original on the inside. That was built by a local person. Um, and all over Pennsylvania, you have libraries built by local donors. So, I mean, if you want to be kind towards Carnegie, um, you know, you can say, well, you know, the, the press coverage that his giving received maybe prompted, influenced other people to say, well, yeah, I'll give a library too. But his direct influence on library building, at least in here, here in Pennsylvania, with only 26 communities that received grants, it's kind of harder to make that case. Now, in 1917, the United States declared war on Germany and would enter World War I. Yeah. Uh, the entire nation mobilized on a scale that, that it had not before for a war. Did libraries see that they had a role in this mobilization? Absolutely. And that was something that was different. Uh, that was different. So, you know, my book covers library development from the colonial era all the way through World War II. So, of course, the revolutionary period is part of that time period. Um, the the uh, Civil War is part of that time period. Um, during the Revolution and during the Civil War, at least here in Pennsylvania, libraries shut. <laughs> you know, library is not the priority when the British are invading you. Um, here in Pennsylvania, library is not the priority when the Confederates are coming into Gettysburg or whatever. Not the priority. So a lot of libraries in previous wars had withered. Okay, what makes World War One and World War Two different um, is that well, they're they're overseas wars, um, so so America doesn't have as much of a sense of imminent attack the way they did when the British were here, or when the Confederates were here. Um, so you have a lot of home front activities to support the war. A lot of library leaders, especially at the national level, saw these wars, World War I and World War II, as opportunities to demonstrate the value of libraries to communities. It's like, no, we're not just about providing novels to stay-at-home moms. We provide information to war industries. We can help um, in, in terms of helping community agencies um, organize different efforts. Um, so libraries in World War I and World War II, um, you know, they put themselves forward um, as kind of the local service point uh, where, where everyday people can, can 
connect, get connected to the home front war effort. So for example, um, in World War One, a lot of libraries participated in a books for soldiers program where they collected donated books from the community, you know, reading materials to send to soldiers so that soldiers would have some sort of pastime, you know, in their in their in their downtime hours in camp. Um, libraries serve as places where people can register for the draft or buy war bonds or, or that sort of thing. Um, so, so libraries kind of being the community agency that's open six to seven days a week, um, that has friendly service people, you know, who know how to interact with the public um, and answer public questions. Um, you know, libraries have communication technology like telephones and things like that. So in terms of spreading the word, um, helping people learn about the causes of the war and how it's progressing. Um, so, so libraries, they, they position themselves, I think, successfully uh, to, to contribute to home front efforts. Um, and, and, it, and it's a pretty inspiring story when you think of, of some of the things that they did. Um, for example, one of my favorite librarians to talk, talk about, Mae Valenchik in Allentown during World War II. Um, she was a war bride and her, her, her husband, who she had just married, I think in 1942, he got killed in Italy. And she hand wrote welcome home letters to every single Allentown soldier who returned from the war. So they do some of the psych psychological and community healing work as well. You, it, looking in library records, you see records of librarians bringing donuts to hospitalized soldiers in their mix. Um, you, you see librarians uh, babysitting children in the children's room because the moms are over at the plant doing war work, war manufacturing, you know. Um, the librarians at that time were very willing, and, and I would say they still are today, willing to take on a lot of community uh, needs that aren't traditional library work. It's not just about books, it's not just about information, um, but being that touch point between people and in the broader community. Now, Pennsylvania is a varied state geogra uh, geographically. Uh, and road networks, train networks, all have had a, a variety of impacts. How did that influence libraries? Oh boy! Um, so, uh, funny enough, there's a there's an early section in my book called Libraries in the Land um, that talks about geographic influences on library development. And you wouldn't think that that the effects stem back to geologic time. But they do, in the sense that, you know, when you have rugged, mountainous, hilly sort of areas that separate communities, that's going to make it harder to have county library services. You know, if, if it's hard to get between one community and another. Okay. Um, so, so the placement of libraries, even in the 17 and 1800s, had a, was influenced a lot by transportation. Um, just in terms of where certain communities were founded. A lot of our oldest libraries are 
on coastal sort of or waterways. So, you know, like uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, you know, those are some of our early cities and, you know, libraries going from there. Um, and then, you know, later on, uh, one of the most influential things in terms of developing countywide bookmobiles was uh, Governor Pinchot. And, and the road development that happens um, in the 1920s, 30s, um, because uh, you have a lot of small rural libraries, small rural communities that couldn't afford their own library. Um, and because of the lack of roads, they couldn't really band together with other communities. So a great example of this, a great example um, of this is Adams County. Okay, so Adams County, as of the 1920s, so Adams County is a pretty big county, um, only has about 170 or so miles of road, like paved road, improved road. Um, not a lot of libraries in that county, not a lot of ways to band together. But then, once road development happens, you know, once those Pincho roads start being built, the local local leaders recognize the opportunity like well you know each of us we can't afford to have our own library building but if we work together we can have a mobile library we can have a bookmobile and it can run on these roads and so after those roads get built then in the 1940s Adams County establishes a county library you know based at Gettysburg operated out of Gettysburg but through a bookmobile able to travel all throughout the county using a lot of those roads that were built Montrose um, so in Susquehanna County is another great example of that when I was up in Montrose using their historical records I found this cool map I think I published it in the book this really cool map of Susquehanna County that was produced by the highway department the Pennsylvania highway department where the librarians actually traced out the bookmobile routes and it was because of those roads that they were able to do that um, before that they weren't able to to share books that way. So transportation is an understudied area of library history, but in a state like Pennsylvania, a very large state with varying geogra geography, it's very important. Now, in the mid-20th century, in the 1930s and 40s, the United States experienced the Great Depression, then followed that by World War II. Uh, how did libraries endure? Did they come out of that in a better position, or were they just struggling through those periods? It depends on, on what sort of lens and what sort of perspective you have about that. Okay, so I'll take the Great Depression, all right? Economically, the Depression was horrible for libraries, horrible. So libraries that were lucky enough to have endowments or, you know, large bank accounts, that was wiped out. So a great example is the Oosterhout Library in Wilkes-Barre, okay? That library had been uh, established with a massive endowment from a local donor, um, and well, I, to be completely accurate, he actually um, gave them a retail building that generated a lot of money. And then they eventually, in the 1920s, they sold that building and invested that money in the stock market. So at, in Wilkes-Barre, they had all their money invested in the stock market. Well, we know what happened in 1929. <laughs> Gone. Okay. 
Um, and so that library, which had been able to be independent, no government funding from the 1880s when it was founded all the way to the 1920s, by the 1930s, they need municipal support. And you see that, too, um, in, in other libraries. Lock Haven is another example. Lock Haven's a lot smaller, but they had an endowment that they subsisted on for years, and then the Great Depression wipes it out, okay? Um, so fu the fun library funding gets a horrible hit in the 1930s. Um, libraries react. The first thing that they do um, is peel back on buying new books. So the Free Library of Philadelphia, for example, the Board of Trustees made a really difficult decision. They said, you know what, we're not going to buy books this year or this year or that year. And they bought magazines and periodicals and newspapers because they're like, well, that'll bring fresh material, reading material in every few days or every week or once a month or whatever it is. Um, but they didn't buy a lot of new books. And so the size of Philadelphia's collection really shrinks during that period. Um, because books get worn out and everything else. In fact, in some branches in Philadelphia, um, the children's librarians would set up a row of chairs in the children's section, and kids would come and sit at a chair and wait for a book to be returned. And then when a book got returned, they would give the book to the kid, and then everybody else would move up in line because there were no books on the shelves. There was nothing. And so people had to wait for a book to be returned. And hopefully it was a book you liked. You know? <laughs> if not, you'd be waiting even longer. So, so in terms of fine, and then staffing, getting pay cuts. I mean, sometimes the order of 25%, 50% is horrible. Um, so financially, libraries during the Great Depression, not good. But interestingly, um, other resources, new resources come into play. So for example, um, the New Deal programs like the WPA, um, that many libraries use WPA workers to do building renovations, um, to organize uh, parts of the library collection that weren't well organized. Um, so, so they get labor from the WPA. Um, so that's good. Uh, there are some, like in Scranton, for example, you had some families who have uh, buildings, property that they can no longer afford the taxes on, so they donate them to the libraries, and that becomes library branches. So Scranton acquired two residential homes that they were able to use as, as library branches. So um, a lot of in-kind support from the community rises up during the Great Depression, um, but, but that annual operating support really gets cut. So it, it kind of depends on how you, how you weigh that. Well, Bernadette Lear is the author of Made Free and Thrown Open to the Public Community Libraries in Pennsylvania from the Colonial Era through World War II. Thank you for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.